Thank you for downloading this sponsored podcast presented by PR Week. For more podcasts, visit us online at prweek.com. Hello and welcome to this special podcast produced by PR Week in partnership with Finn Partners. My name is Steve Barrett. I'm the editorial director of PR Week and I guide you through this conversation about combating misinformation about health issues. Really uh, topical subject and we're going to dig deep into this and talk about a lot of the issues. But first of all, let me introduce my speakers. We've got Richard Hatzfeld, who's senior partner, global public health at Finn Partners. Welcome, Richard. Thanks, Steve. And Alexandra Frith, who's Director of Brand and Marketing for Walgreens Health at Walgreens Boots Alliance. Alexandra, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Super excited to join you and Richard for this conversation. Yeah, looking forward to it. So misinformation and health, I mean, I think over the past two and a half years, it's been on pretty much everybody's mind, hasn't it? Every story or narrative has got to be communicated through a health lens now in some form or fashion, whether that's travel, whether that's uh, consumer, obviously healthcare, employee engagement. So it's top of mind, but there's a lot of misinformation out there. We've seen things like uh, criticism of Joe Rogan, the Spotify influencer. We've seen the Novak Djokovic case in the Australian Open. There's a lot of misleading and false information out there. So this podcast is going to talk about why trusted brands like Walgreens have a crucial role to play in promoting credible science-based information. And we'll uh, bring some effective examples into that to illustrate uh, the theory in practice. And the responsibility and opportunity doesn't just lie with brands in heavily regulated spaces, but also mainstream brands. As I said, every story now has a health lens and uh, we need to be um, consistent with all the messaging. So let's get into the topic and um, ask our speakers, and maybe we'll start with you, Alexandra. What are the main drivers of this health misinformation? Because you're at the cutting edge of it at Walgreens Boots Alliance. You must have customers coming in all the time and you've got to, from a corporate level, you've got to communicate clearly, but even down to every single person on the on the shop floor in the retail environment as well. So talk us through that and, and also how it's different maybe in the US to globally because you're a global company. Sure, sure. And, and let me start with the fact that, I mean, Reality is the pandemic in particular in the last few years really shifted how we look at health information, right? As consumers and as businesses. But even before that, health information is not a new topic and health misinformation is certainly not new either. If you look back, this existed for for generations, right? Anti-vax movement has been around for a long time. There's been a ton of misinformation that has always circulated around. I mean, pick a topic. It doesn't have to be health-related either. So, and I think what's really boosted the conversation in the last few years is that health activism really expanded across the overall market. And now, especially when it comes to health, it's not just healthcare brands that are focusing on this patient activism, right? It's really all brands expanding the conversation to become lifestyle partners and using this activism to really drive preference among consumers. And what this resulted in is really the huge rise of influencer-led conversations, basically, right? And sometimes those influencers are trusted sources and sometimes they're not. And ultimately, the conversation is happening 
regardless whether the source is trusted or not. So what's what I think the huge opportunity truly is, is for us is taking the responsibility that comes with the consumer trust and driving the conversation to forums where we can absolutely deliver the information from the trusted source in a way that really enables that consumer to believe it and, and take action based on, on that information that they receive it. Yeah, it's a good point, Alexandra. I think one of the most effective pieces of communication during COVID was the Charlie D'Amelio TikTok thing, the distance dance, which literally reached billions of people around the, the world and possibly got, got a message over, you know, that you need to stay six feet apart in, in a, the most effective way possible. And that's a very new way of communicating. So, yeah, it was, uh, it, we've certainly got a lot of new techniques and ways of getting messages over. Richard, from your point of view, you obviously see it through the lens of a lot of different clients and a lot of different industries, but but specifically health. What's your take on that and in terms of the main drivers of health misinformation? Well, I think you started to allude to it, Steve, in the beginning, where at the time when the pandemic broke out, a lot of this had been primed. We all became health communicators, and those people, many companies who didn't expect to be on the front lines of healthcare, all of a sudden were plunged there. And as a result, we had to figure out very quickly how we could communicate to our employees, how we could communicate to a variety of other stakeholders around basic health messages. And the problem is, and I think Alex also, Alexander also touched on this, the misinformation piece has always been there. We've always been kind of guided to look for information that we could trust or from sources that we could trust. And at a time when you had this mass convergence of health information primed, we weren't ready to actually figure out who to trust. And we also didn't have the ability to go to some of the most trusted sources that we should have, such as the CDC, World Health Organization, and others, because despite a lot of preparation before the pandemic to know how to respond to these kinds of health emergencies, they fundamentally fell down. And I think that was one of the big challenges. We didn't have the reliable sources of health, health information that we really required at the time. So that, I think, got us, off to the, got us off to the wrong start. And we've seen the snowball effect all along. Yeah, Alexandra, we've been following this as a, a macro trend in that people are looking to business as a trusted source more than even governments and the media, which they have more trust in business and brands now, which puts a lot of responsibility on your shoulders, but also is a, is a, is a positive in a way, because it means that um, I can remember a time when business certainly wasn't held in such high regard. So how have you stepped up and to, to the plate in terms of delivering on that extra trust that your consumers and all your stakeholders have placed in you? Yeah, and I think I think this is not new to us as a responsibility. I mean, we've been trusted and in our communities since 1901, right? So we've been in business for a long, long time and have effectively had the core um, persona of the pharmacist be in the communities, right? Be the trusted source of health information for, for many generations. Um, but I think the, the pandemic really challenged us to elevate um, our role and, play, and really play that national, national role in fighting the pandemic. I mean, in the last quarter alone, we've administered over 12 million vaccinations, right? And it's just in the last quarter and over 12 million boosters. And that, so the work is continuing. We're continuing to build on this strong foundation of, of the experience that we've built over the years. And those decades of experience really 
taught us a couple of different things. And one of those big things, I think, is that ultimately people trust the messenger first before they trust the message. So we really take the consumer trust that they've uh, entrusted us with very, very seriously. So that means making sure the information we give them is accurate, making sure that our team members are uh, very much um, armed with the latest information as well and latest best practices. It's also making sure that we are more accessible to the extent possible in our communities. So in fact, during the pandemic, one of the things that we've done was break outside of our four walls, right? And go on our um, vaccine equity bus tour, taking the access point much closer to communities so that we could have the conversations with the people where they were considering the all of the pros and cons of what the vaccination would mean for them and for their families, having the real conversations, having the real conversations around what the concerns are, and being extremely timely, being very transparent with the facts and the explanations and the answers, that's what makes all the difference. Yeah, I would, I would weigh in also, Steve. I think Alexander is really touching on something very fundamental, and that's that the, the level of consumer education that needs to happen right now as a result of the pandemic is is something that I think is now at the forefront. Health literacy and, and consumer education around healthcare has been something that has been bubbling in the background for a while, and it's been primarily uh, episodic and it's been focused around specific conditions. But I think what the pandemic has shown is that we have, we have a need now to have much broader health literacy for a variety of different people. And we need to understand how to bring that information to people where they are, when they're ready to receive it in a way that they know and are, are willing to accept. So when Alexander is talking about you know retail points, it's speaking to pharmacists and having pharmacists as an example, being that trusted voice and being able to break down information in a way that consumers cannot appreciate, or having a person at the retail counter be able to explain in very fundamental terms what what needs to happen for that person's health, but it also needs to back up to uh, at the at the end of the day reliable sources of information coming from you know trusted trusted areas like the CDC or uh, state governments or in in other countries ministries of health and being able to pivot rapidly to adjust to changing health conditions so that people feel again to Alexander's point that they are getting the reliable information they need in a very transparent manner. I think that's one of the sources of uh, challenge that we have right now in addressing this information. Yeah, Alexander, one of the issues about this particular health um, pandemic was that it kind of became political, didn't it? So that, and we, we're living in quite febrile times where people, some people saw it as a sword to fall on, to, to die on. That they don't, they didn't necessarily believe in the science, and they had very distinct views. And maybe they didn't want to wear a mask. They didn't necessarily want to get vaccinated. How do you deal with that? Because obviously, you know, we we're all about science, and you're all about science-based information. But you're dealing with uh, quite a large part of the population that doesn't necessarily agree with that. So how do you? tweak your communications and deal with those situations to make sure that you're doing the best thing for all of your customers and consumers, but, uh, but you know, operating in quite a difficult environment. It is a very challenging environment, Steve, for sure. But I think one of the things that makes our situation unique and, and also very much committed to the cause of fighting misinformation is that we recognize the fact that our consumers are 
are diverse, right? There are different stages of being ready for the message. There are different stages of accepting the message. And also they have very unique worldviews that need to be recognized and one of the things that really helps us in that work is that when we look at the at the communities not not two communities are alike we have a unique uh, benefit and privilege of being within five miles to 80 percent of u.s population with walgreens footprint i mean that's a significant number and when you think about communities um, even in my local california that are maybe 60 miles apart but have nothing in common with one another being able to speak the language and to speak to people on the terms that actually are relatable and very germane to their lives, that makes a difference. So, and it's worth noting that when we look at our um, pharmacists and store staff and, and our clinical teams, 45% of our pharmacists are diverse and identify as people of color. And often they're from the community where they work in. So that builds an inherent trust. And then to expand on that, one of the things that we've done very, very intentionally is we've expanded the work that we've done with community organizations. So over the course of the pandemic, we've partnered with over 625, if the memory serves, community groups, organizations, and leaders that ranged everywhere from pastors and church groups to medical community to elected officials to really boost up how the conversation happens at the different levels in our communities, at different levels of that message receptivity so that we can address the vaccine hesitancy the right way. So by taking the conversation to much richer level with the communities across the market, what we're able to do is effectively connect with more people on their terms and ultimately deliver more vaccines. Yeah, Richard, that's a great point, isn't it? Because health equity was a serious issue that came up during the pandemic. And um, and then we had the whole George Floyd situation on top of that. And some communities quite rightly actually are, are skeptical because of their historical experiences with the health system. So if, it seems like what Alexandra is saying there about having people who look like them and who are part of the community to be bringing those messages over sounds really important. Are there any other um, lessons you would draw from that? And are there any other particular examples you can point to where that sort of communication has worked really effectively? Yeah. Well, I think the trusted voices aspect is is extremely important. And Prior to the pandemic, we, we were looking at how can we increase vaccine uptake, as an example, for one client. And what do we need to understand to really blunt vaccine misinformation and encourage not the hardcore vaccine deniers, but folks that are really on kind of a fence and don't necessarily know who to trust. And so they're vaccine skeptics. And one of the big things that we looked at was really building up those trusted voices and then also finding convert communicators. So people who may have had doubts, may have had serious issues related to a lack of vaccination, and then realized that they had an error in, in their judgment and corrected it. And then we were able to go out and speak to groups who looked and spoke and thought a lot like they did. Those convert communicators are extremely important. And we find that there's an opportunity right now, especially with people who've gone through COVID, who've had serious, serious episodes um, with COVID, that they can actually be very important influencers for folks who are still resisting actually getting vaccinated or taking other precautions. I think when you're talking about getting to segments of the population that have historically had very challenging times, I think 
reaching out, finding the trusted voices, as Alexandra had mentioned, pastors, teachers, but most importantly, doctors. And, and we know that there is certainly an issue with vaccine misinformation among certain doctors, but for the, for the broad majority, doctors are still the most trusted source that people go to for health information. And when those doctors look like them, when they look like their patients or when they are in the communities serving those patients, it goes much further to really help bridge a lot of the divides that we have when it comes to vaccine and health access and equity in general. Exactly. One of the things I want to add is that, I mean, that access aspect is just cannot be understated because some communities across the country have really egregious access problems when it takes over 30 days to get a doctor's appointment or you actually don't simply have any physicians in in nearby so what happens is that you have a population right now with declining numbers of standing relationships with their primary care doctor or not having a primary doctor at all right so a lot of times what we find ourselves doing is effectively filling the gap with some of our more innovative clinical models that Walgreens has been bringing to market to really break through um, to the communities that are experiencing physician shortages and effectively are in physician deserts. Steve, you, you bring up an, an interesting question also, and I wanted to make sure, I mean, in addition to what Alexander just said, talking about what's worked. You know, I think one example that still stands out in my mind is the example of what Greece did. So I think this is um, this is where at a national level, having a, an understanding of where your weaknesses are and where your strengths are and being very transparent and candid with your constituents, your population is almost uh, imperative when you have national level health emergencies like a, like a pandemic. So right when the pandemic broke out, the Minister of Health um, in Greece acknowledged something that many Greeks had already understood. And it's that they had a very weak health system. They had huge comorbidities and uh, a prevalence for a lot of challenges that could be exacerbated by a virus like the coronavirus. And so one of the issues, one of the issues that, um, that he took on directly was to speak to the public and say, listen, we have to lock down because we are, this is a national emergency that threatens us at kind of our core with our health system weaknesses. And by being transparent and by being honest with the public, they were able to lock down and have a much more effective response to COVID-19 early on, recognizing that they had weaknesses. We see in other countries where there's a strong trust in public institutions, where, for instance, in certain African countries, they've seen health interventions at work and they understand what ministries of health are doing is effective, um, that they have higher trust in those institutions, that you have a translated uh, higher efficacy rate in terms of countering the pandemic. What we've seen in the U.S. and in other countries is that I don't think we've actually checked our national egos. So we have inherently weak health systems in certain parts of the country. We have, a, I think, a, a misplaced idea of how strong certain responses are, especially you know, when it comes to pandemic response. And we put that aside and we felt that we could take this head on without necessarily following some of the, some of the successful measures that other countries have pursued. 
Yeah, there's so many lessons to be learned, aren't there, from this past couple of years, both on a US and a global level. And you both spoke to the fact that maybe the CDC could have reacted in a, in a better way. And we were certainly unprepared, whether that was from protective equipment or having, you know, um, whilst the industry, you know, the pharmaceutical industry did an amazing job to get the vaccines out so quickly. And maybe that we can talk about that and the expectations now for, for every drug. But um Next time there's a there's an issue like this, and, and let's hope it's not as bad as, as the coronavirus, but what would you like to see done better, Alexandra, at a sort of governmental level in terms of the CDC, the FDA, and, and, and in terms of the way, way they respond? I think from my perspective, and um, my bias as a communicator is going to show here in a minute, um, I think what's really important is that we recognize how people consume information. So then you effectively, as CDC, can step down and communicate in a way that consumers can hear you. Because one of the things that we've learned as part of our own aggressive nationwide um, campaign effort around COVID vaccination was that oftentimes providing timely, transparent, trustworthy facts, but through the channels that consumers actually normally consume their information, that's what makes a difference too. So for just as a as by way of example, we've done some live streams with Telemundo and the Ad Council that f- featured some of our pharmacy leaders in Puerto Rico. We've done some live television events with NBC, so uh, which actually featured the former president uh, Barack Obama and a range of celebrities and dignitaries and medical professionals with real life stories to really help help separate that fact from fiction. We've done a number of events, um, town halls that featured a number of minority celebrity voices and our own leadership. So point is, it's taking that conversation where it needs to happen, because sometimes I feel like we don't do a very good job recognizing that um, as consumerism really taken root in the industry and healthcare industry. And I'm really grateful for it, to be honest, because I think it, it really is a tremendous force that is driving a lot of modernization of how the industry operates. Um, it really is starting to ensure that we recognize where our consumers are and we speak to them on terms that they are willing to listen. I would also add that we had every opportunity to prepare for this. And there have been simulations for the last decade around responding to pandemics of novel diseases, novel viruses, similar to what we what we found with COVID-19. And the big missing factor in all those pandemic simulations was communicators. Communicators weren't at the table. They weren't in the room. They weren't working with all the other representatives who were there within, you know, doing the simulation until just before the pandemic hit, literally in October, I think it was October 2019, uh, November 2019, some communicators were brought into the latest simulation. And that's a red flag. I think it's something we, you know, we're, we're able to do a lot of Monday morning quarterback review right now and kind of look back and say, okay, what could we have done better? But this is one of those things where fundamentally we need to have communications professionals in working with not just CDC and WHO, but a variety of other actors. I think there are a few other things that I would look at, you know, and it kind of builds on what we've been talking about, but it's finding those, it's really finding the, you know, the non-traditional voices. So 
you know, at the height of the pandemic, we had United Airlines and Starbucks and others speaking about the importance of following public health guidelines and pointing back to the CDC. As long as we have the CDC stood up, then I think that's effective. But I think it's also a matter of really making sure that we're taking the lessons that we have right now. We have a massive amount of data now to understand how people take information and how they respond to information. And we should be using that in our segmentation analyses. We should be using it in all of our different uh, communications tactics, working with the CDC, working with a variety of other players to make sure that when the next pandemic happens, and it will happen, um, we're ready and we're actually thinking about how to mitigate conspiracy theories and misinformation and a variety of other factors that influence our response. Yeah, there were some very loud voices, weren't there, you know, from the president downwards. And, and Dr. Fauci obviously was one of those voices. And he has a long heritage in responding to big health issues like AIDS relief, etc. Do you think that age may have gone? Because both of those individuals, President Trump and Dr. Fauci, you know, had people who loved them and people who hated them. So sometimes maybe the loudest voices aren't always the most effective. What's your thoughts on that, Alexandra? Do you think the idea of having the nation's doctor almost telling us what we need to do, maybe is, is that a thing of the past or is there still a role for a, a leading voice like that? Or do we need just more voices in more different places? I actually think I want to kind of double down on what Richard said a few minutes ago. I think it's really important to participate in the conversation. It's really important to amplify the conversation, but point back to the reputable source. Because ultimately, what we also saw during the pandemic is that when you look at social media uptake, right, the micro-influencers saw in tremendous increase in engagement rates, while at the same time, the content that was delivered by some of the more flagship outlets effectively saw an engagement rate slip. And the reason why that's happened is because a lot of times that relevance becomes higher when on the micro-influencer front. So I think the more communicators join the, take up the challenge effectively, right, the banner to support the communication, but for the right cause and point back to what CDC guidelines are, the better off we're going to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, just before I start recording this, I saw that Dr. Fauci is positive for COVID. So we wish him well with that. But uh, to sort of tie up the discussion, Richard, where are we now, you know, especially on the on the COVID pandemic and what, what should be the communications priorities now? There's been a, an easing of restrictions. People can now fly back into the United States without having a test first. What, what are the communications priorities now when we're sort of hopefully emerging from this horrible uh, pandemic? That's a great question, Steve. Uh, you know, I think most, most everyone is um, suffering from COVID fatigue. And I think the uh, I certainly celebrated the easing of restrictions to fly back into the U.S. Um, hopefully, it gives us all a chance to, to travel more freely around the world and, uh, and not have to suffer uh, the expense of having to come back um, and, and you know, try to brave uh, testing on the back end. That said... You know, I think that we are seeing, I can't, I'm not going to speak for other countries because every country is going through its own, its own experience right now in terms of prevalence. But within the U.S. and in a lot of other countries um, that are kind of coming out of the main thrust of COVID and they're seeing spikes in variants, I think it's important for us to continue to practice common sense public health measures. And 
That includes maintaining vaccination. We have had the world's largest clinical trial, in a sense, of a vaccine in this period of time, demonstrating that the COVID vaccines that are on the market right now are safe and effective for a huge range of ages. And, um, and we know that they're effective because even if you do get COVID, it's going to be blunted. We also see that masks still are important and people shouldn't feel shamed to wear a mask. I've been in events in the last couple of weeks where maybe 10% of us have been wearing masks and we have different reasons for that, but that should be a continued practice. Basic hand washing, all the standards, but also continuing to maintain our overall health, I think is very important because COVID is, as a novel virus, it's looking for weaknesses. That's its job. It's looking for ways that it can exploit weaknesses and spread. And the weaker our health system is, the weaker our, our overall population health is, the easier it is that, you know, to, to transmit. And so I think this serves as a reminder for policymakers, for health practitioners, for a variety of different groups, including non-health companies, to really think through what they can do to improve the overall health of our population. Those are some short answers I could keep going on, but I think bottom line is we are going to see more pandemics. If you read um, Ed Young's ex excellent article in the, in the Atlantic a couple of weeks ago, we know that climate change is fueling more pandemics. We know that our behavior is fueling more pandemics. We know that there are a lot of things that are going to happen, and this is something that if we can learn anything out of COVID-19, it's that we need to look at how, how science stood up and communications fell down and what we can learn from that experience. Yeah, and just to finish up, Alexandra, as we sit here in the middle of 2022, what are your learnings from the last couple of years? Where are we at in terms of combating misinformation? And what, what will you, what will you, the primary learning you'll take moving forward? I think for me personally, it's remembering that authenticity will always cut through the noise, right? So in other words, we've got to make sure that as brands and as organizations and as individual communicators, we always think through it really bringing the genuine empathy to the conversation because ultimately you're not going to build trust through appropriation. You're not going to build trust through a me too. You're going to you're going to build trust truly by showing up and demonstrating that empathy to the consumers, the people, the communities time after time and doing the right thing. And I think what happened during the pandemic is that, um, and I don't remember who brought up the point, but United joined the conversation, right? Many, many consumer brands joined the conversation around health and safety. And when you think about the, the wellness economy, right? Growing and continuing to grow almost twice as fast as a global economy, every brand sees themselves as the wellness brand now. So, and wellness in many ways is starting to show up as a more tangible benefit of purpose. So when you take that into account, I think we have a tremendous amount of opportunity ahead of us to really show up in a way that helps drive greater consumer education and understanding of what drives healthful behaviors. You have a far greater opportunity to jumpstart the conversations that have been nascent around the nation for generations as well, right? Around the well-being, around the comorbidities and what causes some of these ongoing chronic conditions to happen. So we can stop not just the future pandemics, um, hopefully, or slow them, but also some of the ongoing issues that we have as a nation, like the diabetes epidemic 
epidemic that's well underway. Um, the fact that you see a lot of millennials right now um, effectively show up with chronic conditions at a far younger age than previous generations have. So the fact that we as a nation are now dialed in to have that health conversation on an ongoing basis, as I, I think is a tremendous positive thing. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. And I think communications is at the heart of it. Like uh, Richard said earlier, communications needs to be involved early, needs to be at the table when the strategic decisions are being made. And uh, thank you, uh, Alexandra, for all the work you and Walgreens have been doing and Richard that you've been doing with your clients. And long may that continue. Thanks for supporting this podcast, uh, Finn Partners, and really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for the conversation, guys. Thanks so much, Steve. It's been a pleasure.